The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God." For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ruth. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Russ Ramsey. If we haven't met yet, I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church's Cool Springs location. And uh, it's good to have you all here this morning. I love being in this room. Um, We have these, uh, Duncan mentioned these at the very beginning of the service, but I want to mention them again. Uh, Ways that you can serve this fall, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, filling one of these out, or both of them, and you can leave them on your chair. You can uh, you can leave them on your chair because <laughs> we already did the offering, and so that's. But uh, there there are ways that this one is all about serving in kids ministry. This church we always need people signing, uh, uh, serving in the children's ministry. And and uh, um, Melanie Rayner, our new kids and care coordinator, is putting together actively uh, September through December that 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 calendar. So that's why we have these. Uh, on the chair now, and we'll have them next week as well. But uh, if you have not been involved in serving in the kids' ministry, uh, we would love to have you um, do that. And then also, this little card is kind of the non-kid-related ways that we can serve. And I'm particularly excited about a couple of items on here. 
Um, we need scripture readers, liturgists, which is what Duncan has been doing this morning, uh, is you know leading us in prayer and readings and confession of sin and that sort of thing. I love having, I've done most of that over the course of the first year of us meeting together and you've, got, you've all gotten a lot of me. Um, and uh, so we're trying to spread that out a little bit. So if you think you'd be interested in, in helping lead in that particular way, uh, I'd love to know that. Um, Set up team, host team, prayer team, and then event planning team. This is another one that's new. Uh, we want to put together a kind of a social calendar for, for uh, the fall and the spring semester, um, which would include all church events, some after church lunches and that sort of thing. If, if you're into that uh, and you want to be a part of that, I want to put together a team that we can empower to, uh, to make all that happen. So, um, so fill these out, drop them in the offering uh, or leave them on your seat. And... Um, uh, that would be awesome. So, all right. This passage of scripture is, is um, it's like a fulcrum where, where the Lord says certain things to his people here and history pivots. It just changes. Um, in particular, he says, uh, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. I will, I, will, I will never hide my face from you in anger again. I will not be angry with you again. I will not rebuke you. Instead, there will be a covenant of peace. And it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. Bruce Springsteen sang this. I think I'm going down to the well tonight, and I'm going to drink till I get my fill. And I hope when I get old, I don't sit around thinking about it, but I probably will, just sitting around trying to recapture a little of the glory well, time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days. They'll pass you by. Glory days in the wink of a young girl's eye. The question is, are your glory days behind you or are they ahead of you? How do you functionally live your life? How do you think about that? Glory days, are they, are they, are they in the past? When you were in your 20s, when you had a Camaro or are they ahead of you? For the, for the believer in Christ, if we're to take Scripture seriously, we have to say they're ahead of us. The best days, the best era of our life has not happened yet. And we perpetually are called to live in that hope. And that's what today's passage from Isaiah is. It's a call to live in hope. And it's a call to prepare for unprecedented joy and peace. To say, I'm going, I'm going to prepare for the future to be one of unprecedented joy and peace. To expect it. To sing because of it. And as I observe life in America, my own life, many of your lives that I, that I know about, I know that it's, it's hard for us sometimes to, to live with optimism to live with expectant hope, to really believe that the best is still coming. We can, be, we can be pessimists for a million and a half reasons. And we all live our lives one of two ways. We either believe that our glory days are behind us and that we've kind of crested the hill, or we believe that they, that they lie ahead. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, we have reason to believe that they lie ahead, and they lie ahead in spades. And so this passage 
for Western affluent people. And kind of by right of being an American, we are affluent, um, whether we feel like we're as affluent as our neighbor. Um, we, 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 have, we have lots, right? We have a lot of things. We turn on the faucet and water comes out that we can drink. We plug things into a wall and power flows through those things. That's, that's an amazing time to be alive. We're going to approach, let me tell you how we're going to approach today's passage, give you a little outline so that you know where we're going. Kind of three, three kind of key things. We're going to unpack the passage briefly, so I'm going to walk us through it very briefly. And then what we're going to do is we're going to unpack uh, some imagery that's in this passage that focuses really on um, Abraham's wife, Sarah. And there's illusions, illusions in this passage that for the first century, or the, the Jewish audience, the original audience of this, they would have been connecting what they're reading to the story of Abraham and Sarah. There are a few, a few key uh, terms and, and ways that this is framed that to them they would say, yes, this is, this is trying to, this is reminding me of the story of Abraham and Sarah. And so we're going to talk about that and kind of how that's used here because it helps us. And then we're going to discuss a theological responsibility. And that theological responsibility is a theological responsibility to be eternal optimists in light of God's grace. And I think that that's going to be challenging for some of us, that we have this theological obligation to optimism. So that's where we're going. So let's unpack it first. Um, These verses, this is Isaiah 54. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, right before, whether, whether you're familiar with Isaiah or not, right before Isaiah 54 is Isaiah 53. You ought to be able to figure that out. But if you're familiar with Isaiah... Isaiah 53, we preached on this passage two weeks ago, is this majestic passage of scripture that talks about the suffering servant who would come and would take the wrath of God toward our sin upon himself and he would do so willingly and he would reconcile us to God our maker. And we read in that passage of the father and the son acting together as one on our behalf to restore us to peace with God. And then we come to Isaiah 54 and God's people are told, because of that, expect peace. Expect peace. And I find this at times to be very challenging because it can be easy to see the glass as half full, half empty, right? That's, that's the pessimist, right? Is the half empty one. It's challenging, but the promises of God are so clear. They're so clear that he makes to us and he keeps his promises. And we see this over and over and over again. And so because of this, we are called to live lives of expectant hope. So let's walk through the passage. The first three verses, Isaiah 54, 1 to 3. It's after the exiles, God says, Israel has become like a barren old woman. She longs for a future. She longs for a future to flow through her, but she just can't see how that's possible. And this is that callback, right, to Israel's beginning when God promised to Abraham and Sarah that they would be the parents of descendants who would outnumber the stars, right? It's a beautiful story. And it's also an impossible story because the problem was they were both old. Abraham was 100, 
Sarah was 65, but she'd been barren her entire life. And they had to live with this. She had to live with this. Sarah's one of my favorite people in the Old Testament. And the reason is because she's one of the characters in Scripture where we're given, I think, more information about her emotional state than we are of just about anybody else that I can think of, except for maybe David. Where Sarah is this person who, you, you know things about her. And we'll get to her in a second. I don't want to rush ahead. So Sarah, the thing is, Sarah was barren. They were both too old to have kids anyway. And God is telling them, yes, but you are going, from you is going to come my people, a nation. And I will bless the world through your descendants but they can't have any. And so God is telling Israel here in this passage, you also prepare for an impossible promise to come true. You prepare for a redemption that is to be fulfilled and you make room. You make room for offspring, for descendants, for people to join you, for your tent to be so full that it will be populated by people from all over the world. And we talked about that last week, right? That, that as they're rebuilding, they're to have this posture of welcoming people in. That in this season of their lives when they should, by, by all worldly accounts, feel decimated, the Lord is saying, you are on the verge of a kind of a growth that you can't even begin to expect of people coming in and belonging to me. And to God's people, he's saying, make room for them, expect this. And then verses four through eight, we get another image. And this is the image of a broken marriage. This exile that they've been in, that Israel has been in, has been like a broken marriage. And you look at books like Hosea and other places where this is talked about, it's always framed as there's been this rebellious infidelity on the part of the wife. And the wife is Israel. And God is the husband, right? And, and, and it's seen in this passage, there's a nod to the shame of her youth, which is a nod to the slavery that they started in, in Egypt. And then there's her widowhood, which is the exile. When you think about the people of Israel, their existence as a nation is bookended by two pretty awful things, slavery in Egypt and exile. And the Lord is saying, I'm restoring you. Even though this is your story, I'm restoring you. I'm bringing you home. And he's restoring her in love. Your maker is your husband. And he's going to have eternal compassion on her. And then we get into 54, 9, and 10. And God says, this exile has been to me like the flood with Noah which is one I just think is a beautiful verse in the Bible where God is saying, to me, let me tell you what this has been like. It's been like the flood. It's been this disciplining, cleansing, hard work that has had sweeping consequences of loss and sorrow. And here, like the flood, God promises that he is never again going to bring this sort of discipline on his people. The covenant God made with Noah was symbolized by the rainbow. Did y'all see the rainbow yesterday? It was a pretty amazing rainbow um, yesterday uh, afternoon or early evening. Um, 
It was very clear in the sky for a certain window of time. It's beautiful. But the rainbow, this, this Hebrew word for rainbow is a, is a, a word, it's the same word used as the battle bow. It's, it's the word of the weapon, which God in his poetry and his artistry gives this symbol that he will never do again what he did in the days of Noah, and it's a battle bow, which if you were to notch an arrow in the string, it would be pointing to heaven, right? That he would take the punishment. It's a nod to what is coming. It's beautiful. And here in this passage, he says, this exile was to me like what happened with Noah. And here he's establishing a covenant of peace and he's just told them in the previous chapter what's going to guarantee that. And what's going to guarantee this covenant of peace is going to be the atoning substitutionary work of the suffering servant on their behalf. So that's coming. And so God doesn't ignore his holy wrath toward our sin and rebellion. He puts, he puts it on his son who willingly receives it in our place and then peace comes through Christ's work and the husband is restoring his wayward wife and he's doing it forever. And so that's what this passage is in a nutshell. That's what he's saying, that there's this restoring thing happening and this exile, this separation, this, this division in our marriage is never going to happen again. And then he gives this in this passage directives. He tells us how to react to this. Tells us how to respond. What are some of those key words? He says, sing, O barren one, sing. What else does he say? Rejoice. Cry aloud. Fear not. Prepare for blessing. Expect great things. Risk optimism. So what he tells them to do. These things are coming. Believe it. Expect them. Live as though this is a guarantee. Do these things come naturally for you? It's complicated, isn't it? We have reasons for hedging when it comes to optimism. Like Sarah, Abraham's barren wife. Let's talk about her. Because she's a person who endured a lot with these promises hanging over her But when she looked at the evidence of her own life, it was just hard to get there to the point where when God would make this promise again, she just kind of would laugh at it. She laughed at him. And God is saying, no, don't laugh. Rejoice. Rejoice in it. So let's talk about Sarah. Let's find ourselves in her story because it's woven throughout here, these, these covenant nods. Sarah is this person who it cost her something. And maybe you're this way, where it costs you something to hope. Because the deal was, God had come to her husband and he had said, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you into a great nation and your descendants are going to be my people forever and I will bless you. I will never stop blessing you and I will make you a blessing to the world around you and your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that's in a culture where the expectation and the greatness of a husband was descendants, right? It was carrying on, building the name carrying out the work of the family trade, having these heirs. And Abraham had none. Why? 
The way Genesis tells us is because Sarah was barren. What does that mean? It means that Sarah lived with the knowledge that she was physically unable to give her husband the thing that he wanted the most, descendants. And she, she lived that way. But you also read about Sarah, that she was strikingly beautiful. Not just a little beautiful, she was very beautiful. She was so beautiful that even at the age of 65, when they would enter a city where there were powerful people, Abraham would tell her, I need you to pretend that you are my sister and not my spouse. Because if these people find out that you're my wife, they will kill me in order to have you. But if you're my sister, they will respect me out of respect for you. And so we have to live this way. We have to keep this charade up, right? And so Sarah has this, this irony that is just floating over her. She has to be aware of it, right? That, that she was, on the one hand, alive with beauty, irresistible beauty. But in a place that no one could see, she was, she was dead. And in this area where she wanted to be alive, she was not. She was barren. She was outwardly beautiful, inwardly hurting. Outwardly, things look great. Inwardly, there is so much pain. If we opened this mic and said, share your story of that, and we all felt real comfortable with each other, we'd be here all day, right? Because we have stories like this where we say, I, I'm decent at putting things together so they look impressive. But I know that I there's this thing inside of me that I can't I can't change and so God visits Abraham and Sarah after they've been living with this promise that they would have these heirs they've been living with this promise now for years and years and years and nothing has changed and God shows up in the form of messengers and they tell Abraham you're going to have this descendant. And Sarah hears it and she just laughs. And it's a laugh that maybe you're familiar with. It's the laugh of, I can't do this. I can't, I can't pretend anymore that we're just going to keep going down this road. That things, I, I'm done. I'm done. It's a laugh of turning away, Right? And the Lord confronts her and says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And God, in the text, so beautifully says, you did. And I love it. I love the simplicity of just, you did. You did laugh. And then he says, before the year is over, you will have this son. What did they name the son? You remember? Isaac. What does Isaac mean? It means laughter, right? Sarah had to have a pretty awesome sense of humor, you know, to be like, this is actually pretty good. We're going to name the boy laughter, and I'm going to remember the joy, but I'm also going to remember how complicated this was. 
but she laughs when she hears it. Is this shell of an old woman with this wisp of a husband now going to succeed at what we failed at for over 50 years? And by this time next year. We're not unlike Sarah. We hear the glory of God's promises, some of which are very personal and fragile for us. And sometimes we feel like we're on the outside looking in and our lives seem to be marked by this kind of lifelessness and this kind of barrenness and these kind of failed schemes, these things that we've attempted. Sarah, at one point, went to her husband and she said, I can't give you a kid, but I've got this maidservant, Hagar. She might be able to. So what if we have our kid by you being with Hagar? And in a period of time that had to have been much shorter than it should have been to Sarah, Abraham said, okay, <laughs> let's give that a try. Hagar has Ishmael. Sarah's word became flesh, dwelt among them. She hated what she got. She sent Hagar and Ishmael out of the camp, which was sending them off to die. She's living with all this, right? All this. And God does the impossible. And it's not clean. But he does it. In Isaiah 54, he says, this exile you've been in, Things have not been good between us. It's a broken marriage. And you feel like you're, you've been dying. You've been carried off into this place where you're not, ever gonna, you're not gonna live anymore. And I'm telling you that you are going to be reborn and that you are going to expand and people are gonna come in and they're gonna be a part of this community and you should build the tent for people that are not already in it because it's going to draw people from all over. Expect this. And by the way, they're going to be coming into a covenant of peace where I will never turn my back on my people again. And the reason he won't is because of the suffering servant. And he says, okay, now expect this. Expect this. Be a welcoming people. Believe in this. Rejoice in this. Sing about it. Turns out we have this theological mandate to be optimists about the future and to rejoice. Now, I don't know how that works for you. I know for me, I can't, I, I, it can come easily to me to be an optimist, but then certain things can happen that just sort of knock it over, right? And then the world is burning to the ground and nothing good is ever going to happen again, right? Anybody like that here? Optimism and joy... Think of them this way. They're indicators of a maturing faith. Optimism and joy indicate that, that you have a maturing faith, where you, you do believe that God is at work in the world. They reveal that we can look at a seemingly hopeless situation and not abandon hope in the process. Not only that, we can look at every sad thing that's happening in this world. Three mass shootings this week. Three. Depending on who's counting... 32 this year, if you're defining a mass shooting as three or more people dying in America. 
We can look at these things and our hearts break and the world is broken and it's a byproduct of a lot of things, not just one thing, a lot of things. And we can look at those things and know that while these things are terrible and while these things are happening and while we wish they weren't and while we're acting to help reduce these things from happening, we know that one day these kinds of horrors will be at best a distant memory or at worst a distant memory, at most a distant memory and at best no memory at all. And there's a rich irony here in this passage because because God is saying these words to Israel and he's saying, I'm telling you that I'm making an impossible promise to you. It seems impossible to you that I'll establish a covenant of peace with you. I'll never turn my back on you again. And the irony is, is that the very fact that they exist is evidence that God has done this before, right? Because they are the descendants. They're the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. They're the descendants of Isaac. They're the ones who came in that promise that God gave to Abraham and Sarah all those years before. I love the irony of that, that, they, that they're here and they're struggling with, can God even do this? And yet the fact that they exist at all is because he's already done it once before. They literally wouldn't exist if God hadn't performed that covenant-keeping miracle. The existence of the church today is no different. Is we exist because of a restoring, atoning work that Christ has done on our behalf. We're here because there is such a thing as an everlasting covenant of peace. The atoning work of Christ has already happened, and Scripture refers to the church as what? As the bride. We are the bride of Christ. We're betrothed. He's coming to take us in a wedding. And the living God says to us, expect me to do this. Rejoice in this. Sing over this. Optimism tests where our convictions and our confidence lies. We live in a wartime mentality sometimes where we're, we're just, we're protecting our interests, we're hoarding resources, we're preparing for the worst. And we can live like the glory days are behind us and we just need to be careful, be careful, be careful. Can we hear the call in this passage to rejoice to see why joy is really the only reasonable response to God's covenant of peace accomplished through the finished work of Christ. We have this call. My prayer for us, because a lot flows out of optimism, a lot flows out of hope that God is ruling and reigning and triumphant, right? And that's the confidence for us to step into things that, that he calls us to be about, like bearing witness to him publicly, where we don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know what the reaction is going to be. And yet at the same time, God is telling us, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I will draw people to myself. The Lord says that. I will draw people to myself. And so we bear witness, and God does the work. And we proceed not as people who are like, I don't think this is going to work, but I'm going to give it a try. Instead, we proceed as people who are saying, Lord, you've told us that you've established a covenant of peace through the finished work of Christ, and you've told us to make room for people to come in and to believe that this delights you to do that through us. This is my prayer for us, is that we would embrace. And I feel like I've taken the long way around the barn to get there, but just to say, look, There's always hope. 
There's always hope. And we have every reason in the world to be optimists when it comes to being witnesses to Christ because of what he's already done and what he promises to do. So it's my prayer for us. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage of scripture where you tell your people that you're not gonna turn away in anger ever again, but instead you are making a covenant of peace. And you make that covenant of peace through the work of Christ on our behalf. And so I thank you for that, Lord. Um, Help us to examine our own lives and the places where we live in fear, where we live as pessimists, where we lack celebration uh, over the good things that you do. Um, We're thankful, Lord, for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.